So as I said, we're continuing with a mini-series in Galatians 5 before we jump back into another whole book of the Bible eventually. And we're driving towards a study of those character traits that we call the fruit of the Spirit. But before we get to the fruit of the Spirit proper, we're examining some important concepts in this section of Galatians 5 in which the fruit of the Spirit is situated. Last week, we saw, or we looked at how Paul uses the term the flesh, and we saw that he does not intend to communicate in this context that the flesh is human effort or ability. Neither does Paul intend to communicate in this context that the flesh is the body. Sometimes in Scripture, elsewhere, the flesh does mean one of those two things, human effort and ability or the body. But here in Galatians 5, that's not what's in view. When Paul says the flesh in Galatians 5, he is referring to the corrupt sinfulness of fallen human nature. Even in those who have been born again, even in those who have been given new hearts, even in those who have been made alive together with Christ, even in those who are new creations in a very real and true sense, nevertheless there remains some corruption. That remaining corruption is what Paul means by the flesh in Galatians 5. This week, we'll build on that and we'll examine the antithesis that Paul sets up between the flesh and the spirit in Galatians 5. And though you may have guessed it or you may have thought intuitively that it is the case, it is important for us to note that the spirit in Galatians 5 is indeed the Holy Spirit and not merely the spirit of man as opposed to the body of man. As we saw last week, Paul uses the term the flesh in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8 in the same way that he does in Galatians 5 with the same connotations when he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In Romans 8 and verse 9, Paul then contrasts the flesh with the Spirit of God, saying, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So in that parallel passage in Romans 8, which is dealing with similar concepts to what we're dealing with in Galatians 5, Paul contrasts the flesh and the Spirit, just as he does here in Galatians 5. And what Paul means there, what he makes explicit there, is that the contrast is between our sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. And that's helpful to us because it confirms for us, though we'd have a sense of it just from reading Galatians 5, but it removes all doubt that when Paul says the Spirit in Galatians 5, he means the Holy Spirit. Because that's the way that he sets up the antithesis of between flesh and spirit in Romans 8, which is basically a parallel passage dealing with the same concepts. And so since... Paul's doctrine of the flesh versus the spirit is bound to be the same, is bound to be consistent in both Galatians and Romans, as he is an inspired author of Scripture. We can't say that he thought of the flesh and the spirit one way in his early days, 
But then when he, he grew and developed and matured, then he had a different doctrine of flesh and spirit. Our, our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture doesn't allow that. What is written is going to be consistent with itself. And so if Paul sets up flesh and spirit as being our sinful nature versus the Holy Spirit in, Galatia, or in Romans 8, then we can be confident that he means the same thing in, Romans, or in, in Galatians 5. rather. So we will proceed this morning with the paradigm in our mind that when we say the flesh versus the spirit, what we don't mean is the body of man versus the spirit of man. What we don't mean is the effort or ability of man versus the ability of the Spirit of God, nor, uh, nor any combination of those faulty understandings. What we mean this morning as we move on, when we say the flesh versus the Spirit, is the sinful nature or the remaining corruption versus the Holy Spirit. This is what we mean. Alright? So with terms defined, the first thing that we should know is that the antithesis that is set up in Galatians 5 between the flesh and the spirit is a zero-sum game. If you've never heard that term before, what that phrase means, zero-sum game, is that one side can only increase or win as the other side decreases or loses. That's what a zero-sum game is. So imagine, for example, that you have $1,000 to spend. And you need to spend $200 of it on groceries at the supermarket, which leaves you with $800. You'd love to buy a new TV, which costs $800. And you'd also love to buy a new computer, which also costs $800. You can't do both. You have to do one or the other. Or think of a seesaw, a children's seesaw in a playground. One side goes up only as the other side comes down. Can both sides go up at the same time such that it forms a V? No. It's not possible. These illustrations help us understand something of what we mean when we, when we talk about a zero-sum game. When it comes to the flesh and the spirit, it is a zero-sum game. You can only gratify the desires of the flesh if you do not gratify the desires of the Spirit. You can only gratify the desires of the Spirit if you do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is how it is set up. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. We cannot interpret this any other way, but that if you are gratifying the desires of your remaining corruption, you are not gratifying the desires of the Holy Spirit for and in your life. And if you are gratifying the desires of the Holy Spirit in and for your life, you will not be gratifying the desires of your remaining corruption. You simply cannot do both at the same time. You cannot eat the forbidden fruit and taste and see that the Lord is good. 
You cannot walk according to the counsel of the wicked and walk by the Spirit and at one and the same time. You cannot love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and at one and the same time love the world and the things in the world as the Apostle John cautions us against in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15. You see what I'm saying here? In any given instance, you are either gratifying the desires of the flesh or you are gratifying the desires of the spirit. You cannot be doing both at one and the same time. There is a clear fork in the road then for all of us in an ultimate sense. What will you do with your life? Will you be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who simply carries out the desires of your sinful nature? Or will you be a man or a woman, a boy or a girl who is attentive to what the Holy Spirit wants in and through your life and seeks to gratify His desires? Ultimately, there are really only those two ways to live. You either live in order to gratify the desires of your sinful nature or you live to gratify the desires of the Holy Spirit. This is the ultimate fork in the road that faces us. <clears throat> we'll talk about this a little, little more towards the end. But this is one way of delineating the difference between Christians and non-Christians. Christians are those who are endeavoring to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to gratify the desires of the Spirit in their lives. That's their paradigm. As opposed to continuing simply to gratify the desires of their sinful nature, as the rest of the world does. And then having become a Christian and said, yes, I want to embrace that paradigm. I want to live not merely for myself to gratify the desires of the flesh, but I want to live for the glory of Christ. I want to walk by the Spirit. I want to live that new way if you've embraced that paradigm ultimately there are still multiple forks in the road for you each and every day even if you have decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back Nevertheless, there are constant and continual temptations to turn back, if only for a moment, to the old ways. To live that old life. Will you in this moment, will you in that moment, will you in the next moment, gratify the desires of the Holy Spirit, by whom you have been made alive together with Christ? Or will you... Go back and gratify the desires of your old self. Multiple forks in the road that you encounter. Even after you've made that ultimate 
uh, turn at the, that ultimate fork in the road and you're on the right path, big picture. Nevertheless, there are all these tiny little forks in the road, if I can use that illustration. This antithesis gives us an important lens through which to view the nature of the Christian life. In one sense, the Christian life can be boiled down to the battle between the temptation on the one hand to remain what we were before God's gracious intervention and continue to yield to our remaining corruption and to go back there and to revisit that old way of life over and over on the one hand. Or on the other hand, the opportunity and the responsibility that we have now to recognize that the Holy Spirit has made us alive together with Christ and is working in and through our lives and to cooperate then with what He's doing. In some sense, the Christian, the Christian life it can be boiled down to, well, it's one way of looking at it, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Let's examine now that concept of recognizing what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through your life and cooperating with it. This is what Paul calls walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and keeping in step with the Spirit in this passage. In verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Look, if you're a Christian, who made you alive together with Christ? You? What does Ephesians 2 say? When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even then, God made us alive together with Christ. And if we want to be specific, it was God the Holy Spirit who gave you the new birth. And thus, you live by the Spirit. You live because of the Spirit. If you live because of the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, if the Holy Spirit has made you alive together with Christ, then keep in step with the Spirit. Then walk by the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. These things are synonyms. If we live by the Spirit, then let us walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, then let us be led by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. These are three ways of saying the same thing. What Paul sets up in Galatians is the idea that if, if the Holy Spirit has given you new life, if you were once lost in darkest night, but thought you knew the way, and then God intervened and showed you that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and that you deserved to have the wrath of God poured out upon you for your sins. And that there was no way you could possibly muster up enough righteousness to please God. And if the Holy Spirit brought you to a place where you saw this and you admitted this. And you recognized this and you took God's side against yourself. And said, yes, guilty as charged. I deserve to be punished for my sins. I have no righteousness in and of myself. But if at the same time the Holy Spirit brought you to a place where you saw Christ as all-sufficient, that His righteousness is all you need to be counted as righteous before God, and that Jesus' death on the cross was 
propitiatory, which means that, that God's wrath was poured upon Christ Jesus instead of you, so that His wrath was turned away from you. And so because of Jesus, there is no more wrath for you. Because of Jesus, you are counted as righteous. If the Holy Spirit has brought you to that place of faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone. If He has brought you to that place where you experienced that going from once was blind, but now I see. Once was lost, but now I am found. Once had a heart of stone, but now I have a heart of flesh. Once was dead in my trespasses and sins, but now I have been made alive together with Christ. What Paul is saying is that if you have been made alive by the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit, then this is going to be your experience. As you go about your daily life, there will be two opposing forces pulling you in opposite directions. There will be the remaining corruption on the one hand, the flesh. Go back to that old life. Go back to those old ways of thinking. Go back to those old beliefs. Go back to that old worldview. Go back to those same indulgences and pleasures. Go back to that old way. Live your old life again. Look wistfully over your shoulder. And on the other hand, there will be the Holy Spirit. Your remaining corruption is truly and properly you. In some sense. This is why as Christians, we admit that we are still sinners. Rather than saying, I'm not a sinner. That's just the flesh. As if the flesh was something else entirely. Something other than you. This is why we apologize. Or we ought to apologize at least. When we do something wrong. We don't just say, Man, I can't believe what the flesh did to you. Okay? It wasn't me. So I don't have to apologize. I'm not responsible for what the flesh does, but let me just say, I am incensed by what the flesh did to you, right? And I'm on your side, right? We apologize and we say, I'm sorry for what I did to you. Because we have to admit that in some sense, the flesh is us. It's not something other than us. Our remaining corruption really is us. Yet, Paul says in Romans 7, verses 16 and 17, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And again in Romans 7 and verse 20, Paul says, If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So there is a sense in which your remaining corruption is you. But according to Paul, there is a sense in which your remaining corruption is not you. Let's unpack Paul's anthropology a little bit with a view to understanding how to walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. For Paul, obviously, there has to be more than one part of you. Right? I'm 
going to get into all this um, today, but he's obviously saying there is a part that does not want to do something. There's a part that agrees with the law of God. And then there, nevertheless, he does something that he doesn't want to do. So there's this conflict within him, right? And so there's, there's this I and yet not I dynamic in Romans chapter 7. Right? For Paul, all we need to know for our purposes this morning is that there is a part of you which decides whether or not to give in to another part of you that is corrupt or not. There is a decision-making part. Now we know that the part of you that is corrupt still is you. Right? We are, we've already established that. And yet Paul's able to get some distance from that part and be like, in a sense, that's not really me. Right? So I want you to see that it's like we're saying, in some sense, the remaining corruption is you. But in some sense, the remaining corruption is not you. And there's this other part of you that is distinct, distinguishable from that remaining corruption part of you. And that part is going to interact with the remaining corruption. And is going to decide whether to give in to the desires of that remaining corruption or not. There is a part of you that can agree with the law of God that it is good. Is that the corrupt part of you? No, obviously not. There is a part of you that can delight in the law of God. Is that the corrupt part of you? No, obviously not. Right? And yet, that part that can agree with the law of God that it is good and can delight in the law of God can also be the part that decides to gratify the desires of the flesh. Right? This is the, the there is this decision-making part, if you were, if, or if you will. Right? Which can can think and evaluate and agree with the law of God that it is good. And delight in the law of God. And yet this part is not uninvolved when you sin. It's not like if you leave here and go somewhere you shouldn't be and do something that you shouldn't do. It's not like that decision-making part stayed in the church building and the rest of you went and did it. That part is still you. Right? For our purposes this morning, for simplicity's sake, okay? This is not a, this is not a sermon on anthropology. Right? Though I think I have to deal with anthropology a little bit in order for this to make sense. But let's just call that deciding part you. Okay? So from here on out, right, I've clarified that the sinful nature still is you in some sense. Alright? But from now on, I'm just going to call that deciding part you. Not to imply that your remaining corruption is not you. But in order to be able to talk simply about how you experience the battle between the flesh and the spirit in your daily life. In simple enough terms so as to be profitable. 
Okay, so if I can put it this way then now, with those caveats and that nuance in mind, if I can put it this way now, you are stuck in the middle of a tug of war. There is a zero-sum game going on, like a tug of war, in which the flesh's desires will be gratified at the expense of the spirit's desires, or the spirit's desires will be gratified at the expense of the flesh's desires. And you need to decide what you're going to do. In the first place, if you're not already, you need to become conscious of the very fact that this tug of war is happening. On the one hand, not everything that you think is right. Not everything that you feel is right. Not every impulse that you have is good. Not every intuition that you have is good. You need in the first place to admit the possibility, at least, that a thought or a word or an action or an attitude or a deed or an intuition or a sense or an impression that you have could very well not be coming from a good place within you, but from a very corrupt place within you. You need to acknowledge the fact that corruption remains in you in spite of being a new creation, in spite of being born again, in spite of being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Experiencing the new birth and receiving the Holy Spirit does not give you a carte blanche license to just go with your feelings and your impulses and your present ways of thinking and acting so forth and so forth. You can't just say, well, I'm a new creation. I got the Holy Spirit. That old me is dead and gone. He's, he's no trouble to me anymore. I've been made new. So therefore, when I think something, I trust myself. When I feel something, I trust myself. When I want to do something, I trust myself. If I have a strong impulse, I trust myself. Because I'm a new creation. You see, you've got to acknowledge the very fact that on one end of the rope is this thing called the flesh. And it's still a very real and present danger to you. And it is pulling in this game of tug of war, if you will. You've got to at least acknowledge that in principle. Be conscious of that. On the other hand, you need to be conscious of the fact that there is a Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, He lives in you. And He's on the other end of the rope, pulling, so to speak. If I can put it that way. Sometimes Christians recognize sinful and corrupt thoughts and feelings and impulses within them. And they feel like they're left on their own to battle against these things. To battle against these corrupt thoughts and feelings and impulses. There is a Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian... He lives within you. And He has desires with respect to your life. To work in you. And through you. And to bear fruit in you, Christian. And so you are not left on your own to battle against those corrupt thoughts and feelings and impulses. 
You need to recognize, first and foremost, if you're ever going to make progress in walking by the Spirit, in being led by the Spirit, in keeping in step with the Spirit, you need to acknowledge in principle that there is this zero-sum game going on in your life between the flesh and the Spirit. The flesh is real, but the Holy Spirit is real. And every day, the Holy Spirit and the flesh are going to be exerting influence upon you. The first thing you need to do, Christian, is simply become conscious of that. And both aspects of that. Not that there is a Holy Spirit only, but no flesh. Nor that there is flesh only, but no Holy Spirit. Be conscious, simply, of the fact that the flesh and the Spirit are warring within you. The second thing that you need to do in any given situation is discern the Holy Spirit's desires in order that you may gratify them. In some cases, this is obvious. For example, does the Holy Spirit desire that you would get drunk tomorrow and go jump and grind and walk up promiscuously on whosoever you have an urge to as our nation celebrates Kadumen? Or is that the flesh? Right? It's obvious. This is the, Paul says is evident. Right? And he, he pulls some low-hanging fruit. Sometimes it's very obvious what the Holy Spirit's desire for you is or isn't. And what the flesh's desire for you is or isn't. In other cases, it is, it is less obvious. Does the Holy Spirit desire that you pour yourself out just serving just one more needy person in the, in, the bus, in the midst of a busy week where you've already been pouring yourself out to help various persons in need? Or does the Holy Spirit desire that you go home and strengthen yourself in the Lord and by the ordinary means that He's provided for your replenishment, a good meal, sleep, etc., so that you can continue in a sustainable way to pour yourself out further in days ahead? Just an example. But sometimes it's not as immediately obvious and intuitively obvious what it means to walk by the Spirit or to gratify the desires of the flesh. On the one hand, maybe it's wisdom from above telling you, look, go home, rest, replenish, regroup, and serve again tomorrow. On the other hand, maybe you're just being selfish and lazy and you really ought to go. Right? Sometimes it's not as immediately obvious. It's not always crystal clear what the Holy Spirit desires to do in our lives. Now, some Christians go wrong by making everything the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompted me to wear such and such a shirt today. The Holy Spirit prompted me to wear, to take this particular bus, or to say such and such to a stranger, etc. And on and on they go, and everything is, is supernatural guidance and prompting from the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about this a little bit more specifically next week. I'm raising things generally and principally this week. Next week we're looking at what does it mean that if, if uh, as it says in our text, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. What is the relationship between being led by the Spirit and the law of God? And how do we understand what the Holy Spirit desires to do in our lives? And what does that mean with respect to the law and so on and so forth? We'll get into that, God willing, in a little more detail next week.
but I'm simply raising things generally and principally. Some go wrong by making everything the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But other Christians go wrong by acting as if there is no Holy Spirit and He had, has no desires to speak of with respect to what you do with your life. And that this is basically just like an owner's manual. All you do is just try to follow it. That's it. They're, the Holy Spirit's influence in your life is really just negligible or perhaps theoretical and there's no such thing as being able to be attentive to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life specifically as opposed to in the lives of Christians in general which are guided by the Word of God equally applicable to everyone. Right? So there are problems problems here. But what we need to find a way we need to find a way to work through these problems and discern what are the desires of the Holy Spirit with respect to my life in order that I might gratify the desires of the Holy Spirit with respect to my life rather than gratify the desires of the flesh with respect to my life. So first of all, become conscious of the very fact that there is an antithesis between the flesh and the spirit, that there is a tug of war, so to speak, going on in your life. Second, obviously you're going to need to discern what are the desires of the Holy Spirit in order that you may gratify that. Thirdly, in a given situation, once you have acknowledged in principle that the Holy Spirit has desires with respect to your life, and once, secondly, you have discerned in a specific instance what those desires are, the third thing, and all that is left, really, is to gratify His desires. To yield to Him. To submit to Him. To cooperate with Him. Referring back to the example I gave you a moment ago, let's say that you discern that, yes, the Holy Spirit is teaching me about love and self-sacrifice in this season and making me more Christ-like in that way. So I really ought to go pour myself out for one more, one more time for a needy person instead of going home to rest. I believe that's what the Holy Spirit desires to do in me and through me right now. Well, in such a situation, if you go home... Are you gratifying the desires of the flesh? Or are you gratifying the desires of the spirit? The answer to that is the flesh, of course. Are you walking by the spirit in, in such a case? If you discern that the desires of the spirit are such and such and you do the opposite. Well, the answer is no. Obviously not. Are you being led by the spirit? When you know full well what His desires are for you, you've discerned and then you don't obey. You don't yield, you don't cooperate. Are you being led by the Spirit? Well, I know, I mean, I know what He wanted me to do, so I consider myself a Spirit-led person. Well, did you do it? Well, no. But I, I mean, I, I, I still think I'm led by the Spirit. You know? That doesn't really make sense, does it? Are you led by your GPS if you arrive at your wrong destination? And you're like, well, I'm, I really am a GPS-led person. 
I've been led by the GPS to where the GPS wanted me to go. If you didn't follow the GPS and you didn't end up where the GPS wanted you to go, it doesn't really matter if, if that electronic voice was saying turn left in 200 meters if you didn't do it, right? So you can't be led by the GPS just because you have a GPS on and yet you ignore its instructions. Likewise, you can't really be led by the Spirit just because you have the Holy Spirit on, so to speak, but you don't actually turn when He says turn. Right? You see, recognizing and discerning what the Holy Spirit is up to in your life is not enough. We must yield to and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit are all synonyms, as I said earlier. They're all referring to this lifestyle of not only being attentive to and discerning of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through your life, but actually also yielding to and cooperating with Him in that respect. So Christian, when you come to those decision points, those forks in the road, where you have to choose either to gratify the desires of the flesh or the desires of the Spirit, first, be conscious of the battle that is raging and the danger that the flesh remains to you even though you are a regenerate person indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And be conscious of the help that is available to you by the Spirit in that very battle. The Holy Spirit is present and desirous to work in you against your flesh. Let me say that again because especially some of us who have overreacted against the errors of charismatic Pentecostal theology need to hear it again the Holy Spirit is present and desirous to work in you against your flesh second endeavor to discern how he is at work in your life what does he want to do in this particular situation As you face a temptation this week, and you're bound to, consider, even just literally stop and ask yourself the question, what, what does the Holy Spirit desire in this situation? And how could I gratify that desire instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh? Does the Holy Spirit want me to close the lid of my computer and walk out of the room? Does the Holy Spirit want me to hold my tongue in this controversy? Does the Holy Spirit want me to speak up for truth in this controversy? Does the Holy Spirit want me to rest and recuperate so that I can serve better in the long run? Or does the Holy Spirit want me to pour myself out more fully for the sake of others in the short term? As you face various decision points this week, even it might be helpful to just ask yourself, what does the Holy Spirit want for my life right now? What does the Holy Spirit want me to do in this situation? Sometimes the answer might not be obvious, but even in the asking and in the considering of that question, 
over time, that habit will result in growth as you are better and better able to discern what the Holy Spirit desires in and for and through your life. But I guarantee you that many times this week the answer will be quite obvious. If you, if you simply stop and ask the question, you're going to know what the Holy Spirit wants you to do in a particular situation. And then third, once you have a sense this week of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life, yield to Him and cooperate with Him. Ask Him to help you. Holy Spirit, I know you want me to do this or do that. I'm really struggling in this battle between the flesh and the spirit. I'm going to try to gratify your desires. And in so doing, not gratify the desires of the flesh. I need your power. I need your assistance. I need your aid. Please help me. The point, as I said last week, the point of this study in Galatians 5 is not to learn theoretically what someone in your situation should do and to develop a good doctrine about it. What is the right doctrine about how John should live? What is the right doctrine about how you, whatever your name happens to be, is? Or, or should do, rather. What is the right doctrine about it? That's not really the point of this study in Galatians 5. Of course, you need to understand what you should do in order to actually do it. So that's part and parcel of it. But if we stop there, it's like turning on your GPS and not following it. You're not actually being led by the Spirit. And you're not actually gratifying the desires of the Spirit and ending up the kind of person that He wants you to be. You're, you will find that if you simply develop a doctrine about how one ought to live, and theoretically what walking by the Spirit is, in theory, in doctrine, but you don't actually yield to the Holy Spirit and cooperate with what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, then what you will find is that there will be a dearth of the fruit of the Spirit in you. There will be a serious want and lack of the fruit of the Spirit in you. No matter how much you're... No matter how orthodox your doctrine of progressive sanctification is, you must get to that third step of not only being conscious of the battle, of not only becoming cognizant of what the Holy Spirit is up to in your life, shaping you, informing you to be the kind of person that He wants to be, bearing fruit in you. But you need to actually get to the point where you're yielding and cooperating with, obeying and submitting to what the Holy Spirit wants. Where you're actually gratifying the desires of the Spirit instead of the flesh. We are those who have been justified by the work of Christ counted as righteous for Christ's sake. And we are being progressively sanctified by the Spirit. Be attentive to how that process is unfolding. And be cooperative with what God the Holy Spirit is doing in your life, making you like Christ Jesus in actuality, in whose righteousness you have already been clothed 
legally. 